talking about this and then kind of go through bullet points. Likewise, in journalism, uh, when you're writing a news story, the first paragraph of a news story will tell you the who, what, why, where, when, and then details will follow. However, when it comes to novel writing, which is what I do primarily, uh, different elements are introduced and then over the course of the story, they weave together. So hopefully that is, is beginning to happen as we started off in week one uh, talking about people who were reacting to injustice uh, at the outbreak of World War II. Last week uh, we talked about uh, people chiefly from the Quaker faith who were among the first to speak out against the evils of slavery. And by and large, we finished in 1776 when the Society of Friends formally said that owning another human being was contrary to uh, both the laws of man and God. So unfortunately for the United States of America and the Constitution that followed 11 years later in 1787, that we had uh, an imperfect, um, well, an imperfect setup in that even as we espoused that all men were created equal in our declaration that uh, as represented in our Constitution, that that equality did not extend to all men and women. And so for the next 80 years, the pot began to boil, such that by the time we got to the 1850s, that most observers of the American scene understood that slavery was the most divisive uh, issue at, at, uh, in the American soul, and that something was going to happen. So, to give you a hint of what's to follow today, um, this is a stereoscopic photograph that was circulated right after President Lincoln uh, took the Oval Office in 1861. Um, and because I'm remembering uh, who our audience is today, that you will notice both on the handout, which hopefully you all have or will get, um, as well as in a number of these slides, that there's a Presbyterian theme that runs through this. Um, so here in May of 60, 1862, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church sent a very long and uh, supportive correspondence to the president, and part of their conclusion uh, was letting the president know that essentially all Presbyterians were praying for him formally and informally. So, and the besieging the throne of heaven was the language that they used uh, because uh, not only was it a, a different uh, era 150 years ago, but the, the language of general discourse was much more peppered with uh, religious illusions and people's faith. So, our friend Abraham Lincoln, who we have many myths about, and uh, many an author has come to his life, especially since uh, we know in retrospect how it ends dramatically, um, and can come up with any number of, of I guess, justifications for uh, whatever topic it is that you might have. So whether uh, it's uh, on slavery, whether it's on uh, women's rights, whether it's on the, the separation of power between federal and, and state governments, that there's a lot of material there for people to draw many different conclusions. Um, so by and large, what we'll find in today's presentation, that um, rather than try and uh, figure out who got him right, most of the quotations will actually be from Lincoln himself, um, so that he can speak as best as possible uh, on, in this case, what his faith meant to him. So 
Both his mother, who died when he was only nine, and his stepmother were illiterate. His father was semi-literate and could sign his own name with some difficulty. So the, the myths about Lincoln being a self-taught person are significantly true, and he absorbed quite a lot. There was a family Bible, he didn't own it, and in fact, not, not until he was 33 years old did he have a Bible of his own, and that was a gift from a mother of a friend. And he lived on the frontier, and as it, it says in the uh, excerpt in the photograph, ignorant Baptists, noisy Methodists, and dogmatic Presbyterians were his experience with organized religion. Um, however, uh, by 1846, when he wanted to run for political office um, in Springfield, Illinois, he wanted to run for the congressional seat there to the U.S. House of Representatives, um, his questioning of matters of faith uh, was well known in, in circles there in Springfield. So in July of that year, as he's running for this office, running for the House of Representatives, he had to issue a pamphlet saying, I am... I'm not opposed to things called uh, the church. So he actually never, he never joined a church in his life, but as we will see, he was a very active member uh, of a congregation in Washington, D.C. when he got there, and uh, even if you only know him uh, on the surface, you understand that his language and his life uh, were filled with uh, the, the themes and, and the the poetry of the King James Version of the Bible. So, in 1846, Lincoln was elected for his one and only term to the House of Representatives. Um, he was seated in uh, early 1847, and right before his one term was finishing in January of 1849, he realized that the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate were responsible for the affairs of Washington, D.C., still the case today, and that while uh, weighty matters of what to do with territories that were wanting to become states out in what we would now call the Midwest uh, were uh, things that filled headlines that in the here and now that the Congress had the authority if they wished to outlaw slavery in Washington DC. So the freshman congressman Abraham Lincoln formally submitted a bill that would eliminate slavery as of January 1st, 1850 in Washington, D.C., because that was totally within the, the authority of the U.S. Congress. As you might guess, it did not receive favor, it did not pass, but as early as 1849, he was thinking in those terms of uh, ways legally to combat the spread of slavery, and in this case, to eliminate it someplace where it, it already existed. So, he went back to being a, a private practice lawyer in Illinois, and in the middle of the 1850s, there was a party that came to the surface called the Know Nothing Party that was very nativist, very, I'm an American, I was born and raised here, and all these new faces um, are nothing but trouble. So um, Lincoln was much more inclusive in his conception of what America was and should be, and for him, the Declaration of Independence was the greatest touchstone in American scripture. And beginning in the 1850s through the rest of his life, it became a, a constant theme that he would return to both for strength and for vision. And so for him uh, to, to listen to the rhetoric of the day, um, uh, he framed it as all men are created equal except Negroes, and then if the know-nothings were to win, except Negroes, foreigners, and Catholics. 
he wrapped this particular gem up by saying that if things went uh, to the know-nothing uh, way in the next election, that he was going to move to Russia because at least their, their despotism was above board. All these photographs, I tried to sequence them so that uh, they are chronologically in order, and as with many of our modern-day presidents, you will le likely notice a change, a metamorphosis from the time that he enters the office until he leaves it, uh, especially since th the matters of his day were genuinely weighty. So, in 1858, uh, the U.S. Senate seat, one of the Senate seats in Illinois was up, and Senator Stephen Douglas was running for re-election. Uh, he was a judge previously, um, and so in their debates, which went uh, all over Illinois for uh, about two months, uh, that rather than call him Senator Douglas, that Lincoln referred to his, his uh, foe as Judge Douglas. And again, uh, his reputation for using the Bible uh, as part of his political language uh, was so commonplace that here in a rebuttal to, to Douglas that uh, he's acknowledging that Douglas uh, says he uses the Bible quite often. Now, as a lawyer, um, he had a, a particular gift for using the, the, the theatrics of the day um, and trying to uh, put them up against the mundane. And so um, I found this particularly revealing as well as almost laugh out loud funny uh, when, uh, he, again, this is still in the buildup, this is in the back forth with Stephen Douglas as they're contesting for this US Senate seat that he acknowledges that you know, the will of God is there, but figuring out how to use it uh, in the day-to-day -day takes a, a little bit of effort. So this is on the cusp of the election in 1858, and by this point uh, in the mid to, to late 1850s, that it has crystallized for Lincoln that slavery to him is a violation of uh, the laws of God and uh, held up against the, the American uh, version of uh, sacred text, the Declaration of Independence, um, that it, it falls there too, it fails there too. So, for him, even as in the moment he might not have been as, how to put this, he might not be for complete uh, manumission of all slaves who were in southern states, um, he, he was a very strong advocate that you cannot deny the humanity of persons of color. And that if you acknowledge that, they're, that they have humanity, then you cannot, you cannot, in good conscience, do anything that would go against their free will. So, 1858, he loses to Stephen Douglas, and he, he now has a national prominence uh, because in some of his uh, speaking between debates that he would go to Indiana or Ohio, and so the nascent Republican Party, which only came into existence uh, in time for the 19, 1856 election, 
um, found that, that his voice and his, his crystallized vision about slavery and um, how to put it in, into plain language, uh, it brought him wider attention. So uh, he didn't orchestrate this, but others um, who realized that Illinois was going to be a swing state. It was, it was unclear as to which way it might go in the 19, 1860 election. Um, that the Republican Party decided to have its convention in Chicago. Lincoln lived and worked in Springfield and for strategic reasons, um, stayed home and let uh, his supporters um, build up enthusiasm for him. So in early June uh, in Springfield, he was brought news that he was going to be the Republican standard bearer in the 19 1860 presidential campaign which ended up being uh, altogether a five-party race. Uh, but um, for somebody who'd never held statewide office, he'd been a state legislator, and he'd been a one-term U.S. congressman uh, against more established uh, names and presences in the Republican Party, previously the Whig Party, that it was a surprise to many since um, outside of a speech to the Cooper Union in February of 1860 and a few speeches thereafter in Connecticut that in the East and the Northeast uh, he was uh, barely known as a name. But the idea of this backwoods lawyer and the myths that were already springing up ab about him, in this case being a rail splitter um, and his homespun uh, Hoosier, he had an Indiana dialect, um, were great fodder for the satirists of the day, the political cartoonists. Um, now, somebody pointed out last week that in the moment, uh, people of conscience are not often welcomed by the society at large, that whether it's Martin Luther King Jr. or Mohandas Gandhi or Abe Lincoln or even our founding fathers in, in the context of, of their age as part of the British Empire, that people who in retrospect are recognized for uh, their, their great vision and their application to uh, a larger goal, that in the moment they are often subject of scorn and derision. This is mild compared to some of the political cartoons which um, exist, um, but th this gives a flavor, and there's a few more, but I, I tried to keep them clean uh, for our purposes. So as the November election is building up and people are uh, beginning to talk about this man, Lincoln. Um, in Harper's Weekly, this cartoon appears on the left where um, already the burdens of the black man are uh, on this one candidate's shoulder and as a balancing bar, he's using the Constitution. So um, people did have a clear grasp in the moment of the precipitous dangers that the nation uh, was facing. They did not necessarily understand in August of 1860 that there was going to be a civil war that cost hundreds of thousands of lives, but the, the frictions between uh, the South that wanted to be left alone, and in fact wanted to allow for expansion of slavery to the territories to the Midwest and West, and uh, the North and East that did not want that, uh, it, it was clear to most anybody who was paying attention that something was going to happen. So November of 1860, 
Lincoln is elected. Um, chiefly uh, on the strength of winning all of the, the northern and eastern states, he has enough electoral uh, college delegates to, to win outright. Um, and for the next several months, because uh, in that day, rather than January 20th, which is now our inauguration day, it was in early March was the inauguration. So we had four months um, to plan how he was going to react to events. Well, of course, events beginning with his election started to snowball, and by the time he actually took office, that seven states had seceded and others were to follow. So again, th this is a sample of the political punditry or such that passed in that day and age. Um, P.T. Barnum um, and a caricature of one of P.T. Barnum's uh, oddities standing in for the black race. And the rail splitter is giving his homespun wisdom. So travel back in that, in that day was either by foot, by uh, carriage, or by train for Lincoln. It was gonna be a two week train trip from Springfield, Illinois, his home, to Washington, D.C. And he was going to uh, give thanks along the way to some of the states that uh, had voted for him and also, I guess, build enthusiasm um, for his inauguration. So this is Lincoln sitting on his front porch in February of 1861, right before departing via train to take on the responsibility of steering the nation and doing it as ethically as he could. So in this quotation and in the next one, uh, he gives uh, a, a heartfelt goodbye to his friends and neighbors. And here especially, uh, he pays heed, as he repeatedly will throughout his presidency, to he calls him here the divine being. Sometimes he refers to him as God. But uh, always in his writings, both his private letters and his official uh, proclamations, that the language that Lincoln employs is one of supplication, one of petitioning to the heavens, asking for favor. As I mentioned in the email postcard that went out, that uh, from the time our nation was founded through Lincoln and a little bit beyond, that when, when presidents spoke of God, it was a request that may God bless what we are doing. May God find favor with what we are doing. May we be worthy in the eyes of God. So most of these folks would, would react to bumper stickers that simply said, as they do now, God bless America, which linguistically comes across as a command by us to God to, to act. Whereas for Lincoln, it was very much um, a, uh, a petition, a, a heartfelt cry that uh, he fulfill the will of God and that in doing so, hopefully deliver uh, his nation from the, the pain which was on the horizon. So he's saying goodbye to his, his friends and neighbors and here uh, he he acknowledges that he might not come back, which ultimately, sadly, was the truth, but he didn't know that in 1861. And off he goes, um, stopping, to, uh, stopping along the way to give remarks to the Ohio legislature. 
Um, and throughout this, he's, he's asking for his, his people's fortitude and for their getting right with God. Because one of the unique things about Lincoln compared to all of the other people in the 19th century who uh, had issues with slavery, that Lincoln never blamed only the Southerners. He never blamed only those who held slaves. He said that the stain was upon all of us um, as Americans who had allowed it. Um, and even as he went back and very uh, legalistically uh, analyzed, uh, for instance, uh, who actually voted for the U.S. Constitution in 1787 and how they comported their life and other things that they voted for that included uh, any issues re regarding slavery, uh, that for Lincoln, uh, he didn't blame anybody else. He said that it was a moral failure by all Americans to allow for this, and any one of us who grew up uh, in a system where slavery was the norm and was part of the economy, that we too would react viscerally if somebody said, um, you're going against God, and oh, by the way, things you call property, uh, we're going to take away from you without compensation. So uh, Lincoln had empathy uh, in an unusual degree, to an unusual degree, compared to uh, many of his uh, would-be peers. So along his two-week uh, rail route, after hitting New York and Trenton, New Jersey, um, he came to Philadelphia. Now, a few weeks ago, you probably saw far too many television commercials uh, with dancing Washingtons and dancing Lincolns trying to sell you cars or mattresses or something. And it's cute and it's comical, but on February 22nd, 1861, it was the official U.S. celebration of George Washington's birthday. And so Lincoln, who in the photo on the right is there with his son, Tad. Tad is touching the back of the flag uh, where the stars are and his father is behind him. Um, I'm assured by this, or assured of this by somebody at the National Park Service Independence Hall that yes, he's in there. Um, and the other is from Harper's Weekly, that for, for Lincoln, it was a big deal to be there at this, in a secular sense, a sacred space where both the Declaration and the Constitution were, were brought into being. So, I believe it was January 29th, 1861, Kansas officially became the 34th state, of course, unacknowledged in the ceremony where they're talking about the 34 stars now on the flag, was that seven had already seceded, or said that they were seceding, um, and more were to follow. But here was the first time that a 34-star flag was being raised, and uh, Lincoln gave remarks extemporaneously um, on this occasion. Um, and again, uh, he, he, in his language, he's seeking the blessing of God in what is ahead for his people, his nations, and asking that he can be an instrument of God's will. So from, oh, I'll go back. On the evening of February 21st, 1861, um, he overnighted in Philadelphia at a hotel where Alan Pinkerton and one of Pinkerton's associates came with news that in Baltimore there was an assassination plot against the president-elect. So at this point, the following morning, uh, fresh in his ears is the fact that not even as president, that, that there is a conspiracy and 
a plan to kill him as he goes through Baltimore um, in two days' time. So in his remarks, in his off-the-cuff remarks, I didn't include the entire thing here, um, he says, I would gladly be assassinated on this spot um, if, if, if it was God's will. So the man had, for many reasons, um, a, a melancholy that um, he fought against, but he also had very clear risks that were, um, were thrown down in front of him. And despite Pinkerton's advice that the, uh, the presidential train did go through Baltimore, didn't make the stop that it planned, but um, here he's given a foreshadowing. Even as the rest of the nation, the people on the dais with him, the people in the crowd have no idea um, about this. It wasn't public knowledge until many years later. Um, he, he has a sense of his own mortality, clearly. So, Inauguration Day, March 4th, 1861. The Capitol Building, as with the Washington Monument uh, down, down the mall, which didn't exist as it currently does, um, both of them were unfinished. Um, the dome is still being worked on, as are both wings, and for me, it's a metaphor of the unfinished work of uh, our nation and the principles and living up to them that Lincoln um, is, when he takes the pledge, that, that he is saying that he will work towards finishing. So, during the war, construction continued on the Capitol, construction halted on the Washington Monument, and Lincoln did his, his best, with God's help, to help perfect our imperfect union. So in, in his inaugural address, um, among other things, he says, intelligence, patriotism, Christianity, and a firm reliance on him, God, who has never forsaken this favored land, are still competent to adjust in the best way all of our present difficulties. So again and again, this man who did not grow up in a household uh, that uh, the, where the Bible was read to him. Uh, he did not grow up belonging to a church. Um, and in fact, until, he was until 1942, that he didn't own a Bible of his own. That he was a very active mind. And um, hopefully you will, you will take away a sense of uh, the, the faith journey that this man took. And he took it as an adult um, and employed it remarkably. So, March 1861, he and his family are moving in um, and settling in Washington, D.C. Uh, on the left with Lincoln is his son, Tad. On the right is his son, Willie, early in 1862. More about Willie in a sec. Um, but pretty immediately, Mary Todd, Lincoln, and Abraham searched for and found a comfortable church home New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, which they would occasionally walk to or drive to um, in their sulky. Um, and Dr. Phineas D. Gurley was the pastor there. Um, and his sermons were something that the president seemed to like. So uh, the president and, and Mrs. Lincoln, because they didn't have the term first lady yet, um, the, they made sure that they were there not to disturb they were there early enough not, not to disturb the service. And in fact, perhaps as happened here, when the McKinleys worshiped <coughs> here at Christ Presbyterian, that out of respect for the presidency, that all the, the folks in the sanctuary would rise and wait till the president and his wife were seated. So most every Sunday, they were there. He never became a member, mind you, but 
he voted with his feet, and that's where they went. So in February of 1862, barely a year, not, not even a year in office, uh, Willie, who was the person in the individual photo a couple slides ago, um, took ill and unexpectedly died. And he was 11 years old, almost 12. So in this slide presentation, mostly it is Lincoln's own words. There's a few people, and, and this will be one of them, where I've included the observations of other folks about Lincoln, realizing that nobody's memory is perfect and that uh, people sometimes want to emphasize certain things uh, about uh, bigger-than-life figures. But this woman herself is a remarkable story, and I'll, and I'll do a little sidebar. Um, she grew up a slave. She bought her own freedom, um, and originally in Baltimore, and then uh, moved to Washington, D.C. She was a seamstress, or a modiste, as they uh, called them. Uh, she was a light-skinned African-American, um, but nonetheless, she was born a slave. <coughs> and for senators, for Jefferson Davis, um, Jefferson Davis's wife, um, among others, uh, that she became the seamstress of choice in Washington, D.C. society. And when Mary Todd Lincoln came in 1861, that she sought out Eliza um, and asked her to become her seamstress. So for all four years of the Lincoln presidency and then in personal life afterwards that uh, Elizabeth Keckley uh, was the seamstress who designed and, and sewed Mary Todd Lincoln's uh, wardrobe. So she had a unique and uh, privileged access to the White House and was there um, in the uh, private quarters uh, with Willie um, after he died and with uh, both Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln and her observations as to uh, both what Lincoln said here um, about the death of a child and then her description, and this came out a few years after the, the Civil War ended, after Lincoln's death, um, uh, that it gives a, a sense of just how powerful um, it, it powerfully rocked his world and yet how, how faith-centered he still was. So this man who was Richard, perhaps your height, um, was brought to his knees um, in grief. Now a few months later, working through both his personal emotions as well as his personal beliefs, in July of 1682, he began to draft what we would now term the Emancipation Proclamation. So this is uh, the original handwritten draft that he did in, in July. Uh, thing, things were modified since then, or after that, to what was released in September. But part of the expiation of uh, the sins that he felt that he carried, because uh, death for, for Lincoln, um, while not uh, perhaps a reflection on the individual who died, it was a reflection on him. So his son's death, and, and they'd lost a child in Springfield as well, uh, that he, he felt that it was 
some failing of his that, that led to the, the death of Willie. So in part, he is trying to atone for the death of a child by working to uh, come up with a way to free those who are enslaved. So even as he's thinking in, in high-minded terms, uh, he's still commander-in-chief, and the war grinds on. This is taken at Antietam, which was a bloody battle in Maryland in late September of 1862. A year later, uh, following summer victories by the Union forces, both at Gettysburg, July 1st through 3rd of 1863, and Vicksburg, which was a, a port city on the Mississippi River in Mississippi, um, on July 4th, 1863, that that November, Lincoln is invited to go to the service that's going to be held to open, to memorialize a cemetery for the honored dead of, of both armies, because there were too many to um, to repatriate to their native lands, to the native states. So uh, he's invited as a courtesy, he accepts, and begins to draft um, his remarks. So this is uh, his first pass of what became five versions over the course of about two weeks of the remarks that he would give on November 19th in Gettysburg. Now, photography uh, obviously existed then, but um, long exposures were the norm. That's why sitting portraits uh, were, were typical, um, because uh, to try and take anything in natural light or to try and take anything with a group of people, uh, the, cam the, the film was exposed too long, and it would, it would come out as shadows. Still, uh, historians, archivists, the National Park Service, the Library of Congress, have found several photographs of November 19th, 1863, Dedication Day at the new National Cemetery in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. So after a two-hour speech by the keynote speaker, Lincoln got up to offer a few remarks. Clock ended under three minutes. Um, and he's actually a hat um, in the center of this scrum, if you see the tallest stove, stove pipe hat um, uh, in the background and follow that down. Oh, I think there's a pointer here. Um, somewhere in here is Hatless Lincoln, um, just after giving what we would call the Gettysburg Address. Um, so 1863 becomes 1864, an election year, um, and uh, again, this is a kinder version of some of the editorial cartoons of the day and age, uh, where Abe is coming between two feuding cats. Um, but he was, he was not uh, at all assured when it came to the, the politics that he wanted to run again, um, but ultimately he, he felt that uh, he was best serving God's will by uh, continuing, and um, in early November of 1864, he was reelected. And a few days later, a few weeks later, um, one of the many 
letters requesting um, release of uh, southern, uh, southern soldier uh, by his wife came. And this was Lincoln's somewhat surprising, somewhat tart uh, reply. Um, I include it because um, one of the themes that Lincoln explores is how can two peoples be praying, using the same Bible, praying to the same God, and expecting different results? Um, it was a question which he didn't have an answer to, um, except uh, God will decide um, which is right or most righteous, and actions will follow accordingly. But here in his thanks but no thanks reply to the request for, for pardon or release, um, he makes mention of religion and how some people are praying for something different than he was. So, he's been reelected, but the, the, the human cost of what's gone on by this point, three and a half years in, is substantial. So, here we have Columbia asking for her half million men who have died in the conflict to date back. Um, so w with all this swirling around, it is astonishing to get to March 4th, 1865, where Lincoln is giving his second inaugural. Now, as evidenced in the previous editorial cartoon, it is a raw time for Americans. It is, um, it is an all-consuming reality that uh, the nation is at war with itself, um, and that if you don't know somebody uh, who is serving or has served, um, who, if you don't know somebody who's lost somebody, um, it would be highly unusual. So, uh, whether you are in the North and uh, in favor of, of the Union, whether in the, you're in the South and wanting to be left alone, that the price has been awful and awfully high. So with all that prefacing his remarks um, in March of 1865, it is humbling how he prays for healing. He prays that when all is said and done, that we will find the common humanity in our fellow countrymen, in our brothers and sisters, and that we will bind up their wounds. Most especially, oh, it's a later slide. Um, so he acknowledges uh, the, the, the cost, he acknowledges uh, just how painful it's all been, but he, he puts forward a vision of healing uh, which is poetic and graceful. So the next day, two days later, um, he's acknowledging that, again, as two different peoples um, otherwise are looking at the same sacred text and asking its author to favor them on the battlefield, Lincoln is emphasizing once more uh, just how we all serve at God's will. It's not what we want, but ultimately um, it is what God wants for us and from us. 
April 4th, uh, the 90 miles, 100 miles from Washington, D.C. to Richmond, which has been the rebel capital, the, the Confederate capital all this time, um, is a trip which Lincoln had longed to make with the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia, which was General Robert E. Lee. Um, that by and large, the Civil War is drawing to a conclusion and Lincoln travels to Richmond where at least by uh, the colored people, by the, the Negroes of Richmond, he is enthusiastically received. Um, the city is in ruins, um, having been pounded for, for years and months. But uh, Lincoln goes, pays his respects, and a few days later, he says that once again, um, he will ask for a national day of prayer and humiliation and fasting, uh, which was the custom both then and back to the beginning of our republic, that uh, whether it was George Washington as commander-in-chief um, during the American Revolution or Lincoln as commander-in-chief and president during the Civil War, that our, our leaders would, would ask us to take a, a, a moment out of our lives and go to our respective houses of worship and uh, offer thanks for all that we have and for the trials that we have endured. So this is April 10th, where in Washington, D.C., he has a, a photography session. And this is considered the last photograph taken that day um, because a few days later on Good Friday, April 14th, 1865, he and his wife went to see a play, Our American Cousin. And a great button is great uh, finale is, is given to a remarkable person. However, much more has been said about him since, including in those moments of shock and, and dismay in April of 1865. So his Presbyterian minister, his Presbyterian pastor, was with him um, at Peterson House uh, when he died, and at the official funeral held at uh, the executive mansion, it wasn't called the White House yet, um, that these are among the remarks that Dr. Gurley had to say about his not quite parishioner, um, regular attendee, not a member, but uh, somebody who prayed with him and for him um, he offered up this considered opinion of Lincoln's faith and, and how he lived it. So, just as there was a two-week train ride in 1861 when Lincoln and his family uh, we're moving from Springfield, Illinois to Washington, D.C. In April of 1865, that same route in reverse was retraced. Took a little bit longer than two weeks, um, but the cortege um, wend its way around most of the states of Northeast back to Illinois. One of Lincoln's two secretaries, personal secretaries, uh, was John Nicolay. And 
among the many people who had contact with Lincoln. Um, Nicolay was beyond Lincoln's family and even including Lincoln's cabinet members. Um, Nicolay spent probably more time than anybody else during the Lincoln administration with Abraham. And he was constantly asked, well, what, what, is, what is the man's faith? And honestly, in this memoir of his service in government that Nicolay uh, does say that he didn't belong to any church, Lincoln didn't like creeds. He didn't like, um, he didn't like hypocrisy, most of all. Um, and uh, what he'd grown up watching on the frontier uh, with all the Second Great Awakening kind of revival stuff um, where somebody on Sunday would be preaching something and then during the rest of the week um, hooting and hollering. Um, he didn't care for that, but uh, he ultimately, over the course of his life, especially as, as the last 20, 25 years as an adult, that he came to have a, a vision of God active in this world. And for his secretary, um, he, he touches on that um, and uh, gives illumination to just how central um, the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer were to how Lincoln lived his life and hoped that the nation uh, would as well. And again, for Richard, Judge Milligan, and all the attorneys here, um, how Nicolay finishes talking about Lincoln's faith, I, I just, I find it amusing um, that wouldn't give power of attorney to anybody else when it came to matters of ecclesiastical stuff. So I, I mentioned a couple minutes ago about Lincoln's second inaugural and just how the tone of it ran counter to uh, most everything uh, that anybody was feeling at that moment in time because we're four years into armed conflict. Uh, we've lost hundreds of thousands of uh, our, our most able men. Uh, the, the destruction, the price tag are almost incalculable. And whether it's, it's weariness, whether it's a desire for vengeance on those who would have done this to our nation, any of those would have been understandable. But Lincoln, recognizing that the war at this moment in time, in March of 1865, was hopefully drawing to a conclusion somewhere in the near term, given the battlefield successes and positionings, that his message was one of an olive branch, both to foe and to friend. And he, he wrapped up his remarks um, asking that we bind up the nation's wounds, care for those who fought, for the widows, for the orphans, and seek a lasting peace. Now this was actually done in February of 1865. This is a life cast that was done. So it's a few months before he died, and yes, there are things that, that they did in April of 65 doing a death cast, but this was... Lincoln, um, artistically in bronze, um, from a life cast that was done a few months before he passed. So, otherwise unmentioned 
uh, or at least unrepresented, uh, before this is Mary Todd Lincoln, who he married, I believe, in 1842. Um, this is an 1846 portrait. So she, more than anybody, including personal secretary John Nicolay, um, had a clear sense of Abraham's faith. And so in this and the next slide, she, she gives specificity to um, how Lincoln related to his God. And certainly, as a, a young father who lost a son, and then in the White House lost <laughs> another one, um, that, that tested his faith, it also broke her spirit, um, to be honest. Um, but again, in, in her view, that, that Lincoln, that Abraham, her husband, uh, increasingly across the course of his life, uh, found, um, found hope and found a steadying presence um, with God at the helm. So, trying to do the life of Abraham Lincoln in 45, 50 minutes. Um, now, on your handouts, there's a, a couple quotations that I thought would, would be interesting for you. Some of them are, you know, uh, some of them are, are serious. A couple of them are, are on the silly side, um, including the two Quaker women who are talking to each other and one of them says that uh, Jefferson Davis prays so his side will win. And is countered with, well, our guy prays. Yes, but God knows that he's not serious. So um, Lincoln's faith is something which is, is, for many of us, front and center in the language of uh, how he communicated. Um, however, it didn't fit in any box. Um, he, he might have uh, convened with the Presbyterian Church for the four years that he was in Washington, D.C., but he was rather ecumenical um, and gave great praise to the Methodists for uh, what they do and the Lutherans for what they do. Um, he was not creedal. He wasn't a big fan of the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, but he read his Bible every day, and he tried to, he tried to live the faith that he saw revealed in, in scripture. Uh, so for me, in the overarching theme of Father Forgive, that he is a, a transformational moment in this five-part series because um, not only is he fighting out against injustice and it, in the moment he was rightly, not, he, was, he was largely persecuted for his stance. He was supported by many, but he was also ultimately um, uh, the victim of somebody who didn't care for uh, his vision of equality. Um, and the slavery issue in America was one that from, from the very first, um, whether it was the Quakers that we spoke of last week from 1688 to 1776, trying to come to a consensus opinion about it within their own faith uh, to America as a nation in terms of our, our relations with one another. So um, he is a pivotal person and a pivotal moment because now with the passage of 
and I would look to our constitutional scholars here, um, the 14th through 16th amendments um, that slavery is done away with and the federal government uh, has a right to, uh, to supersede uh, the, the states when it comes to civil rights, that at least on paper, that ha having bled our nation nearly dry um, and the Union victorious, that at least on paper, now slavery and inequality um, is, is behind us. That uh, the aspirational Declaration of Independence in 1776 and U.S. Constitution in 1787, that those lofty goals are now um, achievable because we have eliminated uh, this, this great impediment to our fulfilling of, of those initial visions. We're not quite there yet as, you know, next week and the following week uh, we'll explore some, some further, but uh, Lincoln is a transformational person and a transformational time. So, any questions that anybody would have? I have a sure. <laughs> yes, uh, he had a, a, a reputation for being a teller of parables as well as a jokester, um, sometimes off color, but at least most of the ones that, that they decided to record are, are gentle. Andrew, can you go back to sure. a slide that was dated March 6th, uh, 1865? That was the right after his second inaugural. There it is. As I read that, as, as you were speaking about that that day, just two days after his second inaugural, I was I was very struck by these words. Men are not flattered by being shown there's been a difference of purpose between the Almighty and them. And he had just said essentially that in his inaugural, where he said God it didn't answer the prayers of both sides fully. N neither side got the prayer answered fully. So here he is saying this in an attitude where he's looking to heal the nation. To deny it, however, is to deny that there is a God governing the world. It is a truth which I thought needed to be told and as whatever of humiliation there is in it falls most directly on myself, I thought others might afford me to tell it. Um, I could cry reading that because he has placed himself in the humiliated spot of being chief among those whose prayers weren't answered. He's, he's, he's claimed brotherhood with the nation, this fallen, crippled nation, and he's, he's claimed the brotherhood and, and asked that he might be the one that made that prayer, and, and he might be the one that was afforded the opportunity to tell this profound truth, that we're all crippled together. God didn't answer anyone's prayer fully over these years. It's an amazing sentiment. I'd never seen that sentiment. It was worth the price of admission today to see that. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. May I reinforce your point? For me or anyone to say 
the world's going to hell, things are bad, is presumably for me to deny that God is in control of the earth. To Jim's point, one of the things in the course of researching this and putting it together that was reinforced again and again was how much, in an emotional and psychological sense, that Lincoln, assuming the presidency, taking the oath to serve, protect, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, that as if it were a mourning cloak or a hair shirt, that he, he willingly, in his language, takes on the, the psychic burden of his nation. And it's a fractured nation at that point, but he still includes the, the South um, as part of it. And he, he recognizes himself, metaphorically, in the people who are fighting against um, the, the Union. And it, it's astonishing, afresh, to, to see somebody with that level of, of uh, self-directed humiliation, that um, he doesn't point fingers. Um, certainly, as a younger man, uh, he's, he's playful and sometimes sarcastic. But by the time that he's debating Douglas in 1858 and, and thereafter, the, the seriousness of purpose that he has and uh, his, his inclusiveness when it comes to um, the, the sin of slavery, that he never owned a slave. He, he, didn't, he didn't grow up um, in, in New Salem where he spent most of his life under 21. There weren't any blacks. There were five blacks in the county. Uh, New Salem was a town of 300. So he didn't have much personal inter interaction with anybody except Scots-Irish Presbyterians and, and such out on the frontier. But by the time that he's in his early 30s and now a lawyer, um, he begins to see himself in other people. He begins to understand that um, he is part of a, a larger mosaic um, and that the ideals of the founding fathers, which were... Uh, which more than today were, were part of the... the the mythology, if you will, that the people grew up with, um, that they didn't have the, the dancing commercials, you know, with car sales for George Washington's birthday. They had, you went to church, you prayed, you reflected, or you, you know, if you were a kid, you ran around in the woods. But um, that somehow by the time that he, he's maturing as an adult, um, he, he engages with the, with the primary issue of the day and yet he doesn't point fingers. He says, if, I were, if I'd grown up on that side of, of the river, I would feel exactly as they do. And so let us work together to find um, a, a better avenue forward. Um, and for me, as, as Jim was pointing out, that, that kind of, of language where, where he brings himself forward on his knees to God um, is, is something to behold. We have a question. Uh, also, takes place in the campaign. 
Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't have a ready answer for that. I will look into it. Um, certainly in the 1858 back and forth with Douglas, that there were occasional flashes where on the stump that, that uh, Lincoln would say something and bite his tongue. Um, but even by then, he was, he was a very tempered person. Um, and whether it was, it was the, the death of his first son in Springfield um, or just being in his mid-50s by then, that by the time that 1860 arrived, he was politically shrewd, but he also uh, what he had a self-awareness um, that allowed him uh, to speak to troubling things without, uh, without singling out other people and causing defensiveness. Certainly, there were people who hated him. There were people who feared him, who, who thought that he was gonna take away their, their livelihood. Um, they uh, probably, during his administration, when he suspended habeas corpus, were rightly concerned as to how can you, uh, how can you put a timeout on the supreme law of the land um, and that that was overreaching, but ultimately in part because, large part because of his personal humility that th those, those things subsided and I, I will look into it, but I, I'm not aware of anything by him in the 1860 campaign, which was a, it was a free-for-all because uh, the Democrats, um, such as they were, ran uh, Douglas uh, in the North, Southern Democrats ran a candidate, and then there were two other smaller party candidates who, who got in there. So um, it, it was an unlikely election, and he was an unlikely candidate on paper, but his emotional intelligence, to use a, a contemporary term, uh, is seemingly uh, you know, at the high end of the scale, such as we can understand it from his papers. Yes? No, no, um, he, he, according to John Nicolay, one of his personal secretaries, that he wrote everything. Um, I don't know uh, whether with his wife or anybody else, if he shared with them in advance of, of speaking, but the, the, the general consensus seems to be that he, he, he thought it through, he wrote it himself, and until he was delivering it, that nobody really had uh, any idea what the content was going to be. So to the concern about, you know, would he tell a joke or some kind of folkism um, in Gettysburg in November of 1863, that that would be a genuine concern because nobody knew what he was going to say in advance. It, it wasn't like today where the remarks are circulated to the, to the networks even before the State of the Union speech happens. So they're talking about something which hasn't technically been said yet and they're spinning it and commentating, but then, uh, no, he, he wrote it all by longhand um, on the back of an envelope uh, was his final version, um, sitting in a hotel in Gettysburg. And then he, he gave it, he changed a word or two according to the, the newspaper accounts uh, here and there. Sure. Yes, sir. Uh, in all likelihood, we would be two. We, we, would, we would be United States of America from the Mason-Dixon line or thereabouts, or Potomac River, north and, and west, and there'd be a Confederate States of America. I, I, I don't see anybody else, it, whether it was you know uh, the team of rivals that 
uh, Lincoln ran against and ultimately included in various guises in his cabinet. Um, I don't see any equivalent statesman who had the, the same degree of empathy. Um, and had, had Lincoln lived, the Reconstruction would have been vastly different um, because uh, he, he, he did not want to subjugate his own people. He, he wanted to remove the stain of slavery, but he wanted to treat them with equi equanimity, which did not happen because we now had a martyred president and, they, and the, the people wanted blood and they were willing to look the other way after all of uh, all the costs of war. If people wanted to profiteer, if people wanted to uh, grind down the South for what they caused in terms of pain and suffering, that's, that was fine. Washington looked the other way. But if, if Lincoln had lived, I, I think the, the, the tenor of the 19th century would have been dramatically altered uh, for the better. If he, if he wasn't here at all, well, I wouldn't have this to give a conversation about. Well, my goodness, it's uh, 22 past, so um, we should get on our way. Thank you all for coming, um, and I look forward next week as we move a little bit closer to the present.